The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by Delta Airlines. Delta has partnered with 55 academic institutions to create a pipeline of the next generation of pilots and technicians. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, December 6th. In today's news, Saudi-funded lobbyists paid for 500 rooms at President Trump's hotel in late 2016. A Trump appointee told the VA's diversity officer not to condemn white nationalism after Charlottesville. And that Republican power grab in Wisconsin passes by one vote. But first, the big idea. Former President George W. Bush was eulogizing his father with a perfect mix of serious and funny, remembering his bravery in combat and his dislike of broccoli, his patriotism and his lousy dancing. Then a burst of raw emotion rose up and a grieving son nearly doubled over as he recalled a great and noble man, the best father a son could have. Former President George H.W. Bush was remembered Wednesday as a steadfast leader in tumultuous times and a decent and humble husband, father, and friend during a soaring and deeply personal state funeral at Washington National Cathedral. President Trump joined the four other living ex-presidents and 3,000 guests on a rare day of magisterial ceremony in the nation's capital. Bush 43's tearful tribute to his dad was an emotional high point. The themes he highlighted of service over self, cooperation over partisanship, family and country over political tribe, also suffused the tributes from the late president's friends. On Wednesday, in Washington's Grand Stone Cathedral, the day belonged to tradition and bipartisanship. It belonged to the establishment. The Bushes, like the Kennedys on the left, are American aristocracy, families whose names connote tradition, public service, and a recognized set of values, values that are now largely under fire. The day was American high ceremony in all its finery, with flags snapping in the cold wind, crisp military uniforms, and flowing religious garments, cannon fire and soaring choirs, a 21-gun salute, tolling church bells and motorcades. The cathedral's rows of wooden seats suddenly became the setting for portraits capturing a rare moment in U.S. history. Trump and the Bush family had agreed to an informal truce in the feud that has dominated their relations, at least for the week, to allow the family and the nation to mourn the passing of the 41st president without toxic partisanship. But the tension was still blindingly obvious. When Trump and First Lady Melania Trump entered the church, they exchanged brief handshakes with the Obamas who were seated next to them, as dictated by protocol. Melania Trump shook hands with Bill Clinton, and Hillary Clinton gave her a smile. But the president made no effort to greet the Clintons. Bill Clinton looked in Trump's direction briefly as if willing to shake hands, but Hillary stared straight ahead and never glanced over at the man who defeated her for the White House and still leads crowds even two years after the election in chanting, lock her up. Establishment figures facing their own populist revolts came from around the world to salute Bush. Prince Charles of Britain paid his respects while his government at home debates its nasty Brexit divorce from Europe. German Chancellor Angela Merkel was there too, representing a solidly centrist German establishment that has also been buffeted by furious nationalism. Other guests seem lifted from the pages of Bush's resume. Representatives from Kuwait, Qatar, and Bahrain, all deeply affected by the 1991 Gulf War. They were all there. So was King Abdullah II of Jordan, a staunch U.S. ally whose father, King Hussein, 
well, a longtime CIA asset, was publicly skeptical of Bush's coalition efforts against Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein. Former Polish president Lech Walesa joined the mourners as both a Bush contemporary in power and a symbol of the post-Soviet order that Bush helped nurture during his presidency from 1989 to 1993. The state funeral was certainly steeped in tradition, but there were also a few personal touches to remind mourners that Bush was his own man. He was wearing socks adorned with planes flying in formation, a nod to his service in World War II when he was shot down while flying a torpedo bomber in the Western Pacific. He lived longer than any other president, 94 years and just over five months. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, lobbyists representing the Saudi government reserved blocks of rooms at President Trump's Washington, D.C. hotel within a month after the election of 2016, paying for an estimated 500 nights at the luxury hotel in a three-month period. At the time, these lobbyists were reserving large numbers of D.C. rooms as part of an unorthodox campaign that offered U.S. military veterans free trips to Washington, then sent them to Capitol Hill to lobby against a law that the Saudis opposed. At first, lobbyists for the Saudis put the veterans up in Northern Virginia. Then in December 2016, they switched their business to the Trump International Hotel. In all, the lobbyists spent more than $270,000 to house six groups of visiting veterans in the Trump Hotel. These bookings have fueled a pair of federal lawsuits which are moving ahead into the discovery phase, alleging that Trump violated the Constitution's emoluments clause by taking improper payments from foreign governments. Some of the veterans who stayed at Trump's hotels tell us that they were kept in the dark about the Saudi role in their trips. Meanwhile, a bipartisan coalition of senators filed a resolution last night to formally blame the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, for the murder of Washington Post contributing columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Number two, newly disclosed emails obtained by the Post reveal that the VA's chief diversity officer was strongly discouraged from condemning white nationalism after last year's Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, apparently at the direction of the White House. The tense exchange between Georgia Coffey, a nationally recognized expert in workplace diversity and race relations, and Trump appointee John Ulyat, who remains the VA's chief communications official today, occurred during a low point of the past two years, when the president blamed many sides for the deadly clash in Charlottesville without singling out the neo-Nazis who rallied there. Coffey, a career senior executive at VA, pressed the agency's leaders to issue a statement making it clear that the agency stood against the repugnant display, as she put it, of hate and bigotry. Uliot told Coffey to stand down. A person familiar with their dispute says that Uliot was enforcing a directive that came from the White House, where officials were scrambling to contain the fallout from Trump's comments. Meanwhile, the murder trial of rally attendee James Fields, who was accused of killing counter-protester Heather Heyer with his car, continued yesterday in Charlottesville. Hayden Calhoun and his girlfriend Sarah Bolstad met Fields just before the fatal crash. Bolstad testified during the second week of the first-degree murder trial in a local circuit court that the driver didn't seem angry. She added later, he didn't seem like the kind of person who would do that. Their accounts are the first indication of what Fields' demeanor might have been shortly before Hire was killed. Defense attorneys called them to the stand in an effort to convince jurors that Fields did not travel to Virginia that summer day with the intention of killing or harming anyone, a key threshold to prove first-degree murder. Number three. 
Wisconsin Republicans approved legislation yesterday to limit the power of the incoming Democratic governor and attorney general despite mass protests at the state capitol. The bill, which comes after they lost in the November election, consolidates power in the legislature and strips it away from incoming Democratic governor Tony Evers, as well as attorney general-elect Josh Call. Amid a throng of protesters, the legislature stayed in session all night long to pass the bills, which will make it harder for the incoming Democrats to enact their agendas, including taking the state of Wisconsin out of the lawsuit that could end protections for pre-existing conditions. The state Senate approved the package by a vote of just 17 to 16. Advocacy groups on the left are planning to challenge the Wisconsin bills in court. In New Hampshire, meanwhile, Secretary of State Bill Gardner, a registered Democrat in a nonpartisan office, narrowly won his 22nd term despite criticism of his participation in Trump's voter fraud commission. At a joint session of the New Hampshire State Senate and House yesterday, Gardner won 209 votes to his challenger Colin Van Osteren's 205 votes. His win came in the second round of voting. The first round ended in a dramatic standoff, with Gardner taking 208 votes to Van Osteren's 207, one vote shy of the majority that he needed. Gardner has been in this job since the 1970s, and in the past, he was widely respected by both sides for helping New Hampshire maintain its role as the first primary in the presidential process. But Democrats, people in his own party, got very angry when he joined Trump's now disbanded voter fraud commission and gave what critics viewed as a weak response to accusations that fraud may have been committed in the Granite State two years ago. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, December 6th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. The Washington Post has a new daily podcast, Post Reports, hosted by me, Martine Powers. Every weekday afternoon, we're bringing you stories about the state of the country, the world, and how we come to know the things we know. Get it now at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports.